0: Well, good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 1. And this morning, we will be looking at verses 19 through 27. That is James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Today, we finally arrive to the main theme of James, a living and an active faith. From verse 19 forward, the author's primary focus from this point on is a living faith, which is most explicitly later seen in chapter 2. So leading up to this point, James has talked about a tested faith. We saw that in verses 1 through 12. He talked about the nature of our temptations, and he talked about the goodness of God. Which is all very relevant to the Jewish believers that he was writing to because they were enduring persecution. But from this point forward, all the way to the end of his letter, we see a huge emphasis on ethical instruction, faith filled action, and good works. And because of this, James often gets a bad rap. In fact, Some theologians even accuse James of being a good works rather than grace epistle that ignores the grace of God through Christ. So many people read this letter and they look at it and they say, there's just not a whole lot of doctrine here about the grace of God, just a bunch of exhortations on good works and how we need to pick ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. But that really is a a bum rap for many reasons. First of all, nowhere in the letter of James is legalism taught. James teaches the same commands and doctrines that Jesus did and that Paul did. And the only reason that James places an emphasis on good works is due to his audience and his context. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul. So his ministry was primarily to Gentiles. And the Gentiles were constantly being told that they needed to earn their salvation by keeping the law. And so Paul's emphasis, when we read his letters throughout his epistles, was saying to them, you are justified by faith, not by works. Now James, on the other hand, he's writing to Jewish Christians who foolishly thought that since the law was obsolete and since you are saved by grace alone, you don't have to do anything. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. God has saved you, so eat, drink, be merry. Obedience is optional. And so what we see is these two extremes. On one hand, we have a works-based faith, and on the other hand, we have a dead faith. And so, these two things have historically haunted the church. And these two great deceptions have caused many people to go astray. And neither of these views are the gospel. Some people say uh, that the gospel is a healthy balance between the two. You got legalism over here, you got license over here, and the gospel's kind of a, a healthy balance between the two. It is not a A balance between two heresies. The the gospel of Jesus Christ is in its own unique category. The gospel is salvation in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ that is received by grace through faith alone that then produces transformation, fruit, and good works. And that is exactly what James is after in his Letter, The production, the results, the evidence, or the fruit of salvation in Christ. So he wants these Christians to live out and enjoy and experience the Christ life. He wants them and us to make their election and their calling sure. He's combating Christian laziness and promoting good works, not so that they can earn God's approval. They already have God's approval in Christ. But that they might live out their faith and be alive in him, serving God more fully and experiencing the resurrected life that they've been given. So what James is after, or what I should say what God is after, is a living faith. Not a dead faith, not a works-based faith, but a living faith. Not a faith that just says the right things, but does the right things. Not just a faith that can explain sound doctrine, but a lifestyle that reflects sound doctrine. Not a faith that just knows information about Jesus, but truly experiences him and strives to be like him. So where does James begin? According to, to live out a living faith, he starts with the word of God. A living faith begins with receiving and then doing and then experiencing the, blessing, the blessings of the living word of God. Let's start at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent... Humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So the main imperative here in these verses that I just read is receive the implanted word. That is the first step towards a living faith. This is where it all starts. There's no point in going any further if we are not receiving God's word. And if you want to come to the Christian faith, or if you're already a Christian and you want to grow in your faith, this is the starting point. Receive God's word. So the Bible is God's self-revelation to humanity. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So his story, his plan of redemption his son Jesus Christ. Everything we need to know concerning our sin and God's salvation and how we are to relate to God is sufficiently supplied to us in his word. And so this is why we need to have a a regular spiritual diet on God's word. So there are two things we need to do first if we are going to truly receive God's word. Positively, we must posture ourselves so that we're ready to receive it. We are quick to listen. We are slow to speak. We are slow to anger. And then negatively, we must rid ourselves of any hindering sins. And only then will we be able to receive God's word, the word that is able to save our souls. So think of the parable of the sower. You got God's word, it's, it's often referred to as a seed. Here, James refers to it as the implanted word. So if the seed of God's word is going to be planted and make root and grow, then the soil of our heart needs to be healthy and free from any deadly weeds. So positively speaking, we need to be ready to receive God's word. We need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And by the way, this verse isn't just some random proverb or a fortune cookie saying that that James just kind of fits in this passage. This verse right here is directly related to verse 21, receiving God's word. And so James is showing us the appropriate posture needed to effectively receive God's word in our lives. So obviously, this is a good principle we should follow in life in general. This should be our posture towards our spouse, our co-workers, our strangers. But in context, James is saying this is the attitude that you should have when you're approaching God's Word so that you may receive it. So being quick to listen, what does that mean? This simply means active listening. We are listening to understand. It is the art of closing your mouth and opening your ears and your heart. Now everyone can hear their grandma saying, Jimmy, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Being slow to speak simply means careful response. We hear God's word and we consider it prudently. We don't speak or react off fleshly impulses. We filter our response through the Holy Spirit. We hear truth and we we meditate. We slow roast and we say, Jesus, in light of what I'm hearing, what should my response be? What am I to do? What am I to say in light of what I'm hearing? And being slow to anger simply means that we're not easily offended. And if we have feelings of offense, We don't entertain that. We don't allow it to make root and run its destructive course. So if God convicts us, we don't get angry about it. So think about just how hard it is when you're mad at someone to to receive advice from them. It's extremely difficult. And James gives us a good reason why we shouldn't hold on to anger. He says, because it does not produce the righteousness that God requires Wrath is not a proper tool to further righteousness. It does not advance the kingdom of God, and it certainly doesn't promote Christ and His gospel. So just for an example, yelling at your kids in wrath will not make them more Christ-like. Being passive-aggressive with your spouse, it will not produce righteousness in you or in them. Flipping someone off in road rage does not advance the gospel. And so in the history of Christianity has many examples of this fact. And a lot of the times we dress it up in religious garb, right? And in the same way, if we're getting mad at God's word, if we're holding on to that emotion, it never practices things that God can approve. So this church should be our attitude towards receiving God's word. As we open our Bibles in the morning, as we read it during the day, as it goes forth on Sunday, we are eagerly listening to understand. We are slowly processing a response, and we're simmering any tempers that God's Word might provoke in us. And if this is not our attitude, if you are not slow in listening, or if you're slow in listening, you're distracted by other seemingly important things, And if you're quick in responding, heckling in your mind or constantly objecting or explaining away interpretations, and if you're easily offended, you're mad at God's conviction and you're unwilling to accept God's truth, forget about doing the word. You won't even receive it. And so if this needs to be our attitude towards God's word, is this your attitude towards others? As I'm preaching this morning, are you thinking about dinner plans or are you leaning in with open ears to hear God's word? As I stand up here and read scripture, are you carefully considering your response or are you just explaining away everything that I'm saying? As I read God's word, does it stir up in you anger, conviction and are you dealing with that? Are you you slow in your anger? You're becoming bitter. This is step one in humbly accepting the word of God. A quickness in listening, a slowness in responding, and a slowness in temper. Now the second thing we must do is rid ourselves of all of the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. So we must strip away all of the sins that might hinder us from receiving God's word. Sin has a way of hardening our hearts to God's Word. It has a way of choking out God's Word. So sin is the great hindrance when it comes to humbly receiving the Word of God. I think of Zechariah 7.12, speaking about Israel. It says, They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law in the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So the the phrase stripping away, it's this idea of uprooting or riddance. And so some translations say riddance um, or stripping away. So this reminds me of uh, Molly and I's first garden when we first got married. It was a disaster. Um, I tilled the garden and I left all kinds of weeds up and I put in a lot of effort, I felt like. And so I said, eh, the seeds will still grow, right? And so when we planted the seeds that year, uh, nothing grew and weeds prevented the seeds from growing. And the seeds that did sprout and did grow uh, produced very little because they got choked out by the weeds. And so I like this imagery because it communicates an important spiritual truth. Just like weeds in a garden Sin is constantly sprouting up in our lives. Sin is so prevalent, says James, even for Christians. So repentance is not a one-time ordeal. And if we do not weed out sprouting sins and we allow them to grow, it will affect our relationship with God's Word. It will affect our reception of God's truth. So that is why James says, rid yourselves of all the moral filth so that you can receive God's word. And so repentance is necessary for obtaining and receiving God's word and in our spiritual growth. There is no humble receiving if there is unrepentant and unconfessed sin. And so that is the, the, the reason why Jesus in the, the first words of his public ministry was repent. Why would he say that? Because his good news would have bounced off sin-hardened hearts. John the Baptist, he came and preached repentance. Why? To prepare the soil of the people's hearts so that their hearts would be ready to hear the Messiah's message. That's why when we come to church, we should ask ourselves and examine ourselves, Lord, is there any sin in my life that might hinder me from hearing your word today? That's why we pray a prayer of confession every Sunday each week. It's not because we're martyrs, these miserable martyrs. No, we do it to, to, to self-examinate. That's why we promote self-examination before communion. That's why we're not afraid to preach repentance because sin is so blinding. It's so deceptive and it hardens our hearts to God's word. So if you have any chance of receiving God's word, even this morning, you must get rid of any hindering sin, renounce any sinful addictions, clean the home of your heart, then go before our gracious God, and he is gracious, and ask him to cleanse you and prepare you for his word. Now, this is important, says James, because look at verse 21. This is the Word which can save our souls. This is the the living Word of God that saves. We're not just receiving uh, instructions or positive vibes or a roadmap to life, as some people would call it. This is the Word of God that contains God-inspired revelation. It contains Christ's Glorious salvation, and it has on every page life-changing power. So this is available to you, even in this moment. God's word which saves, you can receive it, but you must listen. You must be careful in your response. You must be slow in your anger. You must cast away hindering sins And you must bow low in humility and receive God's living word, the word that can save our souls. But James doesn't stop there. We don't just listen and then receive and then move on with life. Not at all. Look at verses 22 through 25. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does." And so listening to God's word is not enough. James is not trying to undermine the importance of hearing God's word. How can you do the word if you don't hear it first? But if that's all you're doing, you're just listening to God's word, you're listening to sermons, you're listening to good Bible teachers, but there is no transformation, no fruit or application of it in your life, that's deception. James says, you are deceived. Now, why is that deception? One, because listening is not the end goal of God's Word. God did not give us His living and active Word so that we could hear it, sit back passively, and say, amen. God did not give us the account of His story the account of Israel, the account of Jesus Christ, and the account of His glorious redemption and His amazing love and His glorious grace, for us to to read that and be left unaffected and unchanged. He did all this so that we would not only know Him and experience Him, but to live for Him, obeying His commands and walking in His will. And it's deception, too, because this listening without doing, it promotes false assurance. There are many people out there today who call themselves Christian simply because they listen to or read the Bible. But just because you hear it or even study it does not mean that you are saved. So if your Christian faith is solely intellectual, meaning you have adopted the right beliefs, or if it is merely confessional, meaning you say the right things about God and theology, and yet it is not transformational and practical, it's not a living faith. It's a false faith. And, it, and you're standing in the same delusion as Judas. If you are not practicing the Word of God, but just sitting around listening to it, and that is your habit... That's a scary, scary place to be, because if that becomes your lifelong habit, it might just be evidence that you are not saved. And I say that lovingly, for all of our best interest in mind. As Mark Dever says, if you know all about good theology but it doesn't affect the way you act, you're not saved. In First John two, do what he commands. First John 2, 4 says, Whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not do it. So if we are not doing the word, it could be evidence that we never genuinely received it to begin with. The Apostle Paul was worried about this when he wrote to the Galatians. He says, I'm afraid that I might have labored in vain. Were you actually saved when I preached Christ? Because your actions are not lining up to the life and the salvation that Jesus offers. Now, someone might raise their hand now a lot and say, are you saying, Jimmy, that we're saved by works? Because it sounds a whole lot like you're saying that we're saved by our, our obedience to God's word. And I would say not at all. You are saved by Jesus Christ and him alone. You are not saved by your works or your obedience And you do not keep your salvation by your works or by your obedience. But the evidence that you have been saved by Jesus Christ is that you have a new life. A life that desires the things of God. That delights in in hearing the word and strives to, to live out the word. Not perfectly, but progressively and incrementally. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Doing the word is not the means of salvation. It is the result of salvation. It is the fruit of being supernaturally saved by God and radically cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And yes, we still fall. Yes, we still sin, even grossly at times. And we don't live there, though. We can't live there because God lives in us. We serve Christ. And we stumble forward, slowly growing in our obedience to God's word. So church, make your election and your calling sure this morning. Don't be a phony. Don't be a faker. Do the word. Don't just come up to me and say, great sermon, Jimmy. Go home. Love your spouse. Go home. Put it into practice. Love your family, make disciples, meet the need of the church, evangelize the lost, enjoy life more fully with Christ. As much as the Spirit dwells in you, read God's Word and allow it to move from your mind and work in your heart until it works in your physical bodily members. Do the Word, don't just be a talker or a theological philosopher. We can sit around a table all day and talk about Scripture, and that's important. That's good. We need to discuss theology, but if, if we're leaving that theological discussion unchanged and unaffected, there's a serious, serious problem. So James even gives us a, a comical analogy to make his point. He says, Forgetting to do God's Word is as absurd As forgetting what we look not enough, we walk away from a mirror. In other words, merely looking is not enough. We must retain what we see. We must act on what we see. And when we do that, says James, you will be blessed in all you do. And friends, that's a promise. If you are listening to God's word and you're cherishing it, and you're doing your best to apply it, you will be spiritually well and satisfied. The word of God is is living and active, according to Hebrews 4. It's not just a book from the library. It's not just a book of magic. It's reality. It's truth, and it's alive. And when you do what it says by God's grace, you experience the greatest spiritual blessing. And much of our misery is simply because we are not doing that. We're not feeding on it. We're not digesting it, and, and we're not putting it into action. But you are most blessed when you are walking with God according to his word. When you hear, love your neighbor, and you do that, you experience some of the, the coolest things in life. When you hear "pray." And felt proud. Do that, you put that into practice, you experience some of the greatest peace and felt presence of God. When you hear Make Disciples, you do that, you experience some of the coolest, most amazing providences of God. When you read Resist Temptation, and you actually would have from the sin you were tempted, it's far greater pleasure and blessing than you would have from the sin you were tempted. So God's Word, it works. Therefore, receive it, do it, and experience the blessings that are involved. And in case you need an example of what it looks like to not do the Word and and an example of what it looks like to do the Word, James gives us two tangible real-life examples in verses 26 through 27. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, His religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the first example is what a dead faith looks like. They say, I love Jesus. He claims to be religious, but they can't control their tongue. They say, I love Jesus, I'm, I'm super spiritual, but yet they gossip, they cut down other people, their, their mouth is like venom, they speak every carnal impulse, and their tongue dominates them. This person, says James, is deceived, and whatever dev- they might think they have, it's useless. Wow. Jesus taught this principle in Matthew 12. He says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you say, my my heart is for God, but your mouth speaks evil and it controls you, that's a contradiction. Or as James says, that's a deception. So then we're shown what doing the word looks like, or true religion. And by the way, the word religion here just means devotion to God. It's caring for orphans. And looking after widows in their distress and walking in holiness. Now, this is a strong example because culturally during this time, orphans and widows were probably the most undermined, unappreciated, and neglected group of people during this time, especially by religious folks. And so the, the so-called religious people, the, the, ones who, you know, the ones who can't control their tongues, Um, They considered such people a nuisance. We see that with the Pharisees, the way they oppressed those who were were sick or with leprosy or, or some sort of a disease or unfortunate life circumstance. But according to James, caring for such people, the needy and the broken, orphans and widows, that is pure and undefiled devotion. And so now James is not telling us that we all need to go out and start a widow ministry or plant an orphanage in in Africa. Maybe he would call us to do that, and we should certainly help widows, and we should definitely help orphans. But the point that James is trying to make here is this, true religion expresses itself in helping those in need. That's true religion. Pure religion sees a need and meets that need. Pure religion sees someone in a slimy pit and says, I don't care what social class you're from. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you've been through. I want to help you because I see a need. And that's agape love. In the same way that God reached us and helped us in our time of distress, we can't help but to do the same. And this is what it looks like to do the word. This is what pure and undefiled religion looks like. And true religion is always rooted in holiness, keeping ourselves unstained from the world. This is another example of doing the word. We keep ourselves clothed in Christ, not allowing the world to stain our garments. We keep ourselves from being influenced by this world's Evil system, and so this is the difference between false and true religion. False religion, it just talks the talk; it just chatters all day about religious stuff, even Jesus, but it denies Him through a lifestyle of ungodliness. But true religion loves to talk about and do us, and then imitate Him. Pure devotion; it enjoys listening to the Word and then doing it. A living faith loves to learn more about God and then look for ways around them to show that love to others, especially to those who are poor, those who are needy, and those who are broken. So just to recap this whole sermon, and guys, really this sermon didn't need much commentary. It's, it's pretty straightforward. But I just want to exhort us one last time. Church, receive God's implanted word this morning. Open your your ears, open your heart, open your eyes. Be slow in your response, slow in your anger. Repent of any hindering sins and receive that which saves our soul. And don't just receive it, but then turn around and do it. Don't leave here and go home and live life unaffected by God's word this morning. It's not enough just to receive but go and do. And as you do the word, experience the amazing blessings of the word. And remember what pure devotion is. Remember what it looks like. It's not just chatter. It's not just talk. It's a love for God that rests itself in our hearts, in our words, and in our actions. So Jesus did not die on the cross bearing our sin, to simply remove the penalty of sin and stop there. God did not kill his one and only beloved son on that wretched tree for us to be forgiven of sin and yet leave us still addicted to sin and enslaved in it. No, God did all this not only to forgive us, And not only to reconcile us back to himself and to give us eternal life, but to set us free from the power of sin in our lives so that we might be free to live in righteousness and to live for him. So we're accepted by him, we're loved by him, we're chosen by him so that we can live for him and live out our our life for him. And so go now and do just that and read your Bible and live out the word like your life depends on it because it does. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Your Holy Spirit truly is uh, alive and active. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would plant seeds of your truth in our hearts this morning. Lord, remind us how great a God we serve. Of Calvary. Remind us of who we are in you. And Lord, get rid of any um, unhealthy thinking patterns. Get rid of any uh, sin in our lives. Help us, Lord. Grant us repentance. We need your help. We're so desperate for you each day. Lord, continue to build your church, continue to work in our lives, and help us to enjoy you more fully and serve Christ more obediently, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.